to do in LA. Uh, yeah. My friends and I got really fucked, so we went and broke into a zoo and ate a fucking penguin. <laughs> I bet you've got the munchies for, for penguin, and yeah. uh, it's going to drive you crazy until you satisfy yeah. it. <laughs>
Spitzer, and he appears on every single one of the committees. Um, that It's like this is real Soviet kind of presentation that you see there. Um, and his goal was essentially to purge psychoanalysis out of um, psychiatry, which is really ironic um, because he, he got his start as a, as a sort of uh, student of Wilhelm Reich, who's like the quackiest of all quacks um, in psychoanalysis. Um, and he wanted to engender a turn toward um, uh, one of Freud's contemporaries, um, uh, um, Emil Kreplin. Um, and the DSM-3 is sort of understood to be a, a Kreplinian turn. Um, a lot of it does boil down to this kind of inefficiency, right? That there's an inefficiency of psychoanalysis that, that's not only time-oriented, um, uh, but it's, uh, it's inconsistent as well um, in, in its results. So you have this uh, sort of uh, way in which results are becoming the... Yeah, and it's the whole transformation of temporality under neoliberalism that a lot of people have been writing about. It's all about contraction of time, condensation, time as assessment and measurement, and psychoanalytic explorations of the unconscious are precisely against that. And what you have then is the industrialization of diagnosis when you can have these weird, vague generalizations of um, um, that in the DSM that then have these um, chemical these chemical solutions. Because I guess the for me the psychoanalytic problem is one uh, it's a problem of um, non-industrialized inter mm. intersubjectivity that is still based on exchange and, and it's based on the craft exchange and it's based on the particularity of that craft exchange. So let, let me actually double back to, to the question of mood as a way of also broadening it out to the question of capitalism and emotionalism. Um, mood, right? And I think this is one of the really interesting bits that comes out of your paper. I mean, the, the, the basic question is, why is mood so important in contemporary capitalism? And we can talk about it in terms of bear and bull markets, of consumer confidence. And it's this ineffable thing which drives the economy in a neoliberal period in which seizing control of the commanding heights of the economy, even in a capitalist form, in terms of you know Fordism, for example, uh, of Keynesian management of the economy, is taboo. So all you can do is shift around the edges of moods and hope that you encourage the right sort of animal spirits to drive markets forward because you can't actually say, for example, we're going to have a mass uh, build out of infrastructure or of whatever sort of energy as a way of driving forward the economy, even under very capitalist terms, without even talking about you know socialist transformation of the economy. Um, and I just wonder how this relates to the question of, of illness and how people see themselves, that mood is just something that you can touch around the edges of to make things be sort of all right without any sub su substantial transformation in your own personhood or subjectivity or, or impact on the wider world. Right, and, and one of the things I think that's really interesting is that in behavioral economics, mood is a, a sort of way out of um, relying on the sort of um, uh, judgments of individual investors. It becomes an object for talking about um, certain confidence trends within the market, right? But it's not um, attached to any one given investor. It's not, it's not, it's not attached. Um, uh, to any one asset. Um, and you see a kind of inversion of this taking place in these advertisements for pharmaceuticals, right? That mood becomes this intensely personal, um, 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 an intensely private kind of uh, category. Uh, but in both cases, I think, you can see mood as this kind of statistical object. It's an abstraction um, uh, that, 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 that allows a, a, a certain kind of um, uh, guiding, guiding of judgment to take place. So there's an obsession with mood in contemporary capitalism and new technologies allow for the measurement of it, as well as for the interventionist treatment of moods. This is clearly a facet of the Californian ideology, 
that is, technology and well-being. But it's accompanied by an insistence on being efficient, productive, and motivated. And this has a distinct class dynamic behind it, as Catherine explains. But I also think there's something like really sinister uh, that happens. And I think this happens. This is probably because I'm hailed more as a woman on these kinds of things, where um, the wellness, the ideology of wellness is a kind of class struggle from the top down. So that every kind of failure in mood, failure in health, is personally attribu- is attributed to some kind of lack of self-care. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very feminized, you know, this idea of self-care. But you, you have this all-encompassing sense of ever-hyper-vigilant um, identity, um, I, trying to identify things that are not going right. And this is what Ehrenreich talks about, too. It's part of the protocol of diagnosis now, that every year you go in and you have to get all of these tests. And in her book, you know, on, um, with that very long title, An Epidemic of Wellness, um, Natural Causes, she says she's going to review re- um, refuse all tests anymore. Because the body itself has become this site of um, constant vigilance to see if there are any disorders. And I think for women, that's always been the way that we've lived. Like, do I, do I, oh my God, I have this flap here, oh my God. You're constantly looking, policing yourself with regard to like an ideal. And now this has been sub- this has been sublated to like being coming a social hypervigilance. But if something goes wrong, it's be it's attributed to your own lack of control, your lack of appetites. And I was saying to um George before this thing that in the in the high in you know robber baron capitalism, the robber barons all had gout and they were fat and ugly and unhealthy and they watched you know young athletic. Um, African-Americans and Irish boxers box because they were so beautiful and in shape because they were always doing physical labor and they were not eating very well. Um, today we have like the capitalist who's super slim, Silicon Valley fit, and the workers are having basic, the working classes having corn syrup basically piped in to their bodies because of the poor diet and, and corn syrup and salt. So we have the monopolization of good health on the hand in the hands of um, the elites, and anyone who fails to achieve, there's a generalization of feminine hypervigilance. Anyone who fails to achieve wellness is you know, morally iniquitous and mm-hmm. failing, and just, mm-hmm. and just failing existentially. And so you can really feel like the working class are just failures at wellness. And wellness is like this very sharp and pointy instrument that's being used to fight against like, a, a different way of being. It's really surprising how much information we collect on ourselves um, about our mental and physical health and how happy we are often to share it. Um, <laughs> or how unwittingly, how unwittingly we, we share it. I mean, he, you know, a friend of mine has a, um, uh, basically a, something that it, is against his diaphragm and it tells him when he's, it's really, it's, yeah. So it's a basically... It's a biofeedback. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so it's, uh, it's and it's connected to his phone, which is well connected to his oh, watch, yeah. which is connected oh, to his like phone. Oh, professional athletes so, have that band. Yeah, because right. he because he he suffers from anxiety. So the idea would be that if he's feeling anxious, his diaphragm tightens up, and then his and then he gets a, a notification to to relax. 
So that would make me really anxious. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's no, the, nothing like nothing like being told to, you must relax right now yeah. to, to make you really relax. It's like, exactly like, and relax, or we're gonna shock you with this. So, yeah, basically yeah. you're being shocked every time you're stressed. You're being you're being like physic, physically shocked, and that's supposed to. To relax you, but I mean, this this that's is definitely it, other. The, that's yeah. um the, the wearable medical instrument. Well, that's all. But still, but you're invited or, or 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 very strongly suggested that you should engage in this yourself if you want to oh, yeah. be well. And who doesn't want to be well? Because yeah. if you're if you're not well, then you're a moral as well as an economic failure. Yeah, yeah. But it also seems like how this runs contrary to something which it seems to be related to, which is you know the whole person, the holistic treatment of the person, which seems a bit new agey. Yeah. And this is the treatment of the whole person as if it were a car or some sort of machine, which all component parts can be tested and analyzed and evaluated and monitored the whole time to make sure that it is a, the, in the best form and function to be able to drive in a single direction, i.e. to be productive, right? Because your, your whole body and mind is being driven towards but economic productivity. This, no, and so it's so, like... Yeah, no, but I also think that human beings need care. And this goes back to Winnicott and my like deeply romantic view of here, but um, this, rather than having your friend go to the doctor once a week, right? That, that's too expensive. We have the self-care, which is auto-surveillance, be a more efficient way for him to regulate his symptoms. Like in a, in a society where we'd have adequate medical care, they, people would be able, people would feel cared for by they're doctors. But, he, but, here's the, but, he, but there's that, a place. Oh, go ahead. The, no, but there's a, there's a, a, there's a shop in um, uh, the Irvine Spectrum. Uh, that's giant that's mall. yeah. Giant it's this mall. big giant outdoor mall owned by the Irvine Company. Um, but there's a, like a store there that 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 serves as a kind of proxy doctor that really plays into this kind of datification of like personal mm -hmm. habit but, and, as a metric for kind of analyzing help. I can't think of what it's called off the top of my head. And, and this I'll is go the, look the at it this weekend and then report back. Oh, this is the whole Theranos story. Theranos, right? right. Which yeah. is Silicon like Valley's this dream like, that you yeah. can just be testing your blood at home and cool. Like I, I can get these instant <laughs> yeah. results. And, going, and, I, yeah. and what's what's really interesting about this is that this is certainly the logic. Of, of, of Silicon Valley's kind of alternative health uh, products, right? Um, they're producing these kind of products that, that ultimately depend on your kind of phone helping you keep track of your own habits and behaviors. But um, internal to Silicon Valley, there's, there's this kind of um, uh, hostility toward the pharmaceutical industry, right? People at Silicon Valley who work in these big um, tech companies um, uh, aren't, aren't known for kind of consuming like pharmaceuticals in the name of productivity. Um, uh, no, no, no. Their, their big thing is um, LSD microdosing. So taking small amounts of LSD to sort of enhance your focus and enhance your, your um, productivity. And there's also this kind of big trend of importing um, what are what are actually kind of drugs that exist in, in um, Eastern Europe and Russia um, uh, that, are, that are known as nootropics. Um, and nootropics are, are designed to kind of enhance your brain functioning, um, uh, promote like whatever, what Barbara Ehrenreich talks about these kind of dubious claims about synaptogenesis or, or neuroplasticity. Um, but they're doing this uh, as an alternative to the pharmaceutical mm -hmm. products that exist in the United mm -hmm. States. And these, these Russian medications can be very cheaply imported into the US um, and they don't fall under any kind of FDA. So, um, self-medication, uh, like I'm my own doctor. Yes, yeah. but it's, yeah. it's in the name of kind of being able to stay up and code for three days without sleep. One thing we one thing we didn't really talk about in in the discussion, which often comes in as a key um, area for the I guess the d debate over wellness or the the I, the claims made for why you should you should optimize and you should 
you know, be as productive as possible is the brain. We now apparently know so much about it, and nootropics are a really good example, that it doesn't make sense not to optimize. It doesn't make sense not to game it. We, you know, we can see, we know all these things that we didn't know, so we actually have more opportunity to, to, to solve social problems, and it's almost irresponsible if you don't um, meditate, if you don't take microdose LSD, yeah. if you don't do all the physical, enhancements, eat, eat yeah, well, and, and exercise, and all these sorts of things. So it's, I mean, yeah, we, um, we don't necessarily have to have to touch on it here, but I think there's, this is a, it's a key site, isn't it? You can, we know, we know about the brain, so this is a tool for us to, to optimize. And you can see this kind of disconnect internal to Silicon Valley too, because the, the, the big VCs and the big CEOs aren't the ones that are kind of like trying to enhance their brain through, through things like nootropics and LSD microdosing. They're the ones that are kind of sponsoring these kind of fad alternative diets, right? right? right, right and and, right. and promoting the idea that they're developing a means for immortality, right? right like right, right. we want to live right, with, with Peter well. Thiel yeah, yeah, for yeah, the yeah. rest of time. The like singularity yeah, in yeah. space, in space frozen and then unfrozen, yeah. dug no, out. it's the like, aspirational, yeah. like the second tier entrepreneur <laughs> who's trying to bounce up into yeah. the top tier. So, who needs to perform that exploit, it's like, Dosing himself, and yeah, I know, it's, it's insane. But there's also something, I mean, to be critical about this, because I, I, I mean, obviously I'm sympathetic to, I'm a big supporter of the, the demand for universal health care in the US, and that seems to be the pat sort of socialist answer to these things, that if you had public provision of health care, you wouldn't have all this other stuff, right? And yes, there's a degree to which it would undercut it, and it would undercut it a lot, but it's important to remember that a lot of these the drive for wellness, the constant monitoring, the, the privatization of health concerns, the, con the constant, uh, you know, um, entrance of health and thinking about health and your own personal wellness in your day-to-day -day life, um, rather than something which is an occasional illness, is something that happens in Europe as well. It happens in, in places where they, there is much greater public provision of health care. So, yes, it would help. Right, it would help if you had Medicare for all in the U.S., but it's not entirely going to take this away no. because there's something that is driving this, which goes beyond just the absence of a, of the public option or whatever. I mean, to make a kind of big Vatic claim, I guess I think part of my project is really interested in trying to demonstrate the idea that the pharmaceutical industry is a culture industry, um, and that these kind of mm. ads kind of foster into these kind of like like public perceptions of health that are not going to get kind of cleared up by just expanding healthcare. In, in fact, you could argue, you could, you could we, we go even further and say the problem, you know, in the UK where you have the NHS, which is the most um, kind of wide-reaching public provision because, you know, in, in Germany, whatever you'll have, uh, you're, you'll have, still have a private, you'll still have insurance, but it's public insurance, right? In the, U, in the UK, most, most medical services are free at the point mm -hmm. of, of, uh, of service, which is a wonderful thing because you re, it's completely decommodified, at least in terms of the patient and, and health institution experience, right? That interface is like, I've got a problem, you go in and it's treated and that's it. But because that is a, because it's then seen as some, a recourse of last resort, like if I'm ill, but what happens before I get ill? And this is, you know, the UK, there's a lot of promotion of preventative health. And so that brings the whole interface of, of health into your private life well before you start getting ill and have to go to the doctor. I think this is one of the things that um, Silicon Valley is trying to capitalize too, right? This notion yeah. of, uh, of preventative disrupt, care. Disrupt even the, yeah. the, the national health Yeah, well, they're the yeah. ones providing the preventative care, right? Like, I think that's kind of how they, they see themselves because preventative care has, has really kind of like sunk in terms of pharmaceutical industry um, interests because they want 
they want kind of um, chronic illness. They want the idea of chronic illness. They want um, a, a sort of continuous consumption of their product. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the historical well, justification so, you know, of the capitalism. The UK is not. It has the NHS, but it's not the socialist utopia. Oh no, of course, no, 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 exactly. But, um, but I do feel like there's um, um, just the lack in the United States. If I can, you know, if we can talk about this, well, this is like the most uncaring society you can imagine right now. Like we used to think it was third world countries or countries in development where inequality is so. I'm just going to make this big statement. So people are looking for ways of producing care, caring relations, and it's so ironic that all of this preventative care is called self care. Because it's mm -hmm. back to auto surveillance. It's like no one else you're is going to care for you. You're the only person who's going to be able to care <laughs> yeah. for yourself. And if you end up going to the doctor, you're bankrupt. So, so um, it's really like um, dire. I do think in the UK there's still there is a bit of that sense still because you know um, you don't know what will happen with that doctor. There are limitations mm -hmm. of medical um, establishment, and if you fail in self care because it's also an uncaring society, then you just end up being you know left behind. Absolutely, and I think it's it, it, so a lot of this responds to a very real need, an absence of community, an absence of yes. caring relationships, yes. and, a, and a movement to this to the individual, yes. which Christopher Lasher already already talks about yeah. in the cultural. I know I sound it's, very sentimental, but I yeah. do, but well, there is a, like you need a robust collective culture of sentimentality and mutual care a, that's not reified, yeah. and in the absence of that, like all we have recourses to these kind of like completely goofy self care. Um, regimes that I feel like really victimize, you know, um, because that advice industry and all that victimize mm. the most vulnerable people. Now, if you'll bear with us, we're going to take things to a slightly higher level of abstraction. This whole discussion of mood does raise the question as to whether society, in the absence of any utopian visions of a better future, finds itself depressed, and whether the acceleration of time and technological innovation can leaving us feeling more stuck than ever. Here's George, and responding to him is Thomas Williams, whose paper, No Revolution is Possible, Depression and the Never-Ending Story of Capitalism, you'll have heard a bit about in part one. I guess one one question which which I had reading the paper and, and, and thinking about this stuff yes. more generally anyway, is does this situation that you, you sketch out where um, you know, potentially there are these obstacles around the mobilization. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the depressive, the depressed person is then frozen, inactive, paralyzed by its very nature while trapped in the depressive temporality. They cannot be mobilized. So yes. there's this idea, you know, maybe this is a, a political mm. impasse. Yes. Does this feel like, not not to be, does, does it, to be quite blunt about it, does yeah. it feel quite dated now? Is this prior to, to 2016? Is this uh, is this in the end of history? And now we've had the end of the end of history, as some people um, like to like to to frame it. Um, and and now we're moving we move on to something else. People are there's a, there's a different affect, and now people are people are angry. Yeah. Not. I mean, do do do, do I you sense that, this I shift? See, I I see that. I'm. I would want to wait for slightly long. I would probably want to wait for slightly longer. Okay. To see whether um see the extent to which this this kind of shift or movement that you talked about okay, but one like how long it lasts one is to say that like i'm not necessarily sure how long the particular form 
the particular thing that I've mentioned there is necessarily going to last too. I mean, this is part of the problem, I suppose, um, of trying to like diagnose, like diagnose the present, right? Mm-hmm. Is is that like we one is that we're like too close to it to actually see what the large, like what the kind of larger scale changes actually are and how significant what is happening now is actually happening. I mean, there's obviously the possibility that. Um, I don't know that the the um, I mean whether this is necessarily a sufficient index of like political change is something, but whether but you know whether if say like Corbyn and Sanders both get you know if if mm. Joe Biden wins the like nomination right and the Conservatives put in Boris Johnson and he wins by a landslide what like what ha- like what happens yeah what, like what like and, what and what it, happens and I mean even that is a transformation at a a level of not which isn't the kind which isn't the kind of in structural transformation that I'm kind of interested in anyway to be yeah to, 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 and I don't I also don't know the extent to which um, no no that's that's fair I think we want to it'd be good to explore this further because we can draw an analogy between economic cycles so that for example post crisis you have a resumption of you know as mm-hmm. now it's become a cliched phrase at the time it was a bit like oh that's interesting but you know the new normal yeah. um that you have a resumption at a, at a lower level of profitability yeah. but the economy kind of stabilizes and you have that as well as a, a, a you know that after a crisis things that a new order is established mm-hmm. with a different configuration and and relation between labor and capital so labor is weakened once again at low at lower wage levels mm-hmm. there's wage repression but things kind of resume again, but profit rates are lower. Yeah. And maybe the same thing happens at, at an effective level, I guess. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm kind of hypothesizing here. But yeah. that one has the the kind of depressive hedonia, as, as Mark Fisher referred yeah. to it as, in the kind of end of history period, that you have these very serious, turbulent disturbances to the neoliberal order, uh-huh. but which then is able to restabilize mm-hmm. around a different configuration, which is maybe a little bit more nationalist, a little bit more nakedly authoritarian. At an effective level, maybe people are a little bit angrier and you lash out a bit more, but that it also doesn't find political expression. So maybe you enter an age of, I mean, here I'm really just spitballing, but, you know, an age of riots, for example, yeah. but completely uncoordinated, unpolitically um, mediated form expressions mm-hmm. of anger, but which also are, are still very much stuck in the self. They're still st- stuck in a kind of narcissistic age of, of, of focus on the self without any... A building of collective bonds or new organizations which are able to transfer people's affect into actual praxis, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it that's a depressing thought, and it and it goes beyond just Sanders not winning or, or Corbyn not winning, which we have to accept as as a possibility. But maybe there's something good driving behind it. We hope, we hope, we hope. But it's also possible. We have to consider that mm. depressing possibility that we we return to the past, but in a, at a different level of, of. I mean, I think that form of. I mean, the form of adaptation, or the, the kind of constant transformation, right, that is inherent in this particular economic form is probably the most terrifying, is at least one of the most terrifying things about it. Um, and But I guess it's a point that we have to take these questions of affect seriously, yeah. that they're not just like, yeah, but the politics are going to solve it for us. Yeah. Because, it, because it, there is a, a weird 
form of um, responsibility aversion there too, even though we're being yeah. political and we're like, no, I'm getting involved with the Sanders campaign, I'm getting involved with Bernie or wherever you are yeah. politically engaged. But if it, if it's just at that electoral level... We can see it as a form of therapy. It, right? as well, as well, and that's even... Yeah, that's even worse. But even in just a sense that you're hoping that the politics will resolve a deeper social crisis, I guess. Yeah. So um, I think it's really provocative to talk this way. And I, I want to go, I want to sp continue spitballing. But one, I think one of the things that happened after 1989, like when we had the golden age of um, centrism come to the fore, is that um, the, the really depressing thing about it, as you note in your paper, is that we are told over and over again that there is no no alternative. There is no social transformation. This is the new reality. We all have to adapt to it. We can't hope for anything else. And um, it lasted a long time, actually, with all these ebullient bubbles coming up through the new economy in California. Because you would be you would be told, like we in America at least, that we're so innovative. We launched you know Mozilla. We've launched Pets.com. People are making money everywhere. And if you aren't doing that. If you want, if you don't have like pet.com or shoes.com, then you're just being left behind. But there's this kind of market ebullience. And then crisis after crisis from 2001 to 2008 ensue. There's a kind of um, um, stasis that those crises um, um, disturb. But um, the normative forces of innovation, entrepreneurialism, narcissistic self-expression, those things last for a really long time. And then we have 2016, which is like some shock to the body politic that's been in this state of contradictory neurotic stasis. I mean, it's like it was like electroshock therapy when um, Brexit, the Brexit vote went the way it did when Trump was elected. And um, what do in some sense, if I'm optimistic, then I say that shock therapy is actually going to be therapeutic because it shakes you out of this kind of depressive normative um, mode. And you, when we start thinking about how we can demand a different kind of authenticity or pro presentation in public spheres, because the one thing you have to give to Trump is he changed the tone. And here, affect theory is important. He changed the very affect of political engagement. He made all of these stuff shirts, third wares, look as inauthentic, as plastic, as um, punishing, as authoritarian as they were meant to be. Of course, he offered a kind of different um, mode of authoritarianism, but I do have to say, effectually, it was liberating mm -hmm. on a very primal level. Now, what that, what that mm -hmm. will transform into is something we don't know. But, it, but I felt like we were in this, like Habermasian, kind of stasis where we're all supposed to be dissenting, but in a civil way with regard to the falseness of centrism's presumptions, the falseness of liberalism's presumptions. And Trump just put a big um, kibosh through that whole thing. So I always feel like we need to have that kind of affectual mobilization on the left. But maybe that's not possible. I, I, I love Bernie. Um, I do think he insists upon this kind of um, the policy-oriented nature of what he's doing. Um, but I do feel like um, the effectual explosion of Trump, the non-normative 
ways in which he was excessive and campy and maybe even queer, like he queered the presidency. He queered the <laughs> Oval Office. You know, it was like the queer dream come America's true. America's first camp president. Um, is... He was, like queer eye for the White House. He has a campy <laughs> wife. I mean, the whole thing is like a queer eye dream come true. Gilded everything, excessive everything. You I mean, could, he's... You could say he... he He's, he's like Liberace. He quit, he's he, like Liberace. He queered the truth as well through. He fake queered news. the truth. He queered alternative the truth. facts. And so now, yeah, what do we do? What do we do with this massive destruction? Um, I, I, I'm not. I don't have any solutions, but I just like this is a different way. Let's think about a different way of periodizing. And yeah. um, I think that's good. And I mean, to move from consensus, Paul. I mean, I, 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 I like Jacques Rancière on this. But, you know, that that is an age of consensus. And what is politics fundamentally at its essential level? It is dissensus, right? I, it, I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, good. So we're done here. Uh, that's a wrap. Do we all, do we all agree? <laughs> we're done. <laughs> but, so Trump, but Trump introduces a mode of politics, which is alien. It's not normative, right? At least by the standards of the previous era to say, no, fuck you. We don't want this, right? Um, which was previously only available in the most, I guess, kind of anarchistic declarations of, well, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me to, to, to well, <laughs> decide something of, like, that, of that We don't era, like technocratic you know? incrementalism. That's like, that was like a basic message. Like, we don't like your, you know, eggheads telling us what the reality is. And I mean, I, su- I suppose I, this is a return to what we're talking about a couple of minutes ago, but to... I think perhaps this is only something which has maybe just occurred to me, which is not. I mean, we could also think, you know, the age of riot and the age of depression actually happening at the same moment. Right. right. So you have something like a long crisis, right, where the crisis is just, it, it seems long. It, it, it's basically like a period in it. Like, it's a period in itself. It's not even like a break in between two things the like length of time that it actually like continues actually itself like constitutes what we would generally normally like think of a, of as as a period so it seems as though you like almost can't get out of this kind of continual form of like rupture and mm-hmm. no right and, and and in fact the the vulnerability uh, and then the, the atomization that we've already spoken about yeah. in relation to how um Depression flows in, I guess, at a, at a, at yeah. a period in which there there's people are more atomized, they're not involved mm-hmm. in organizations. There's a depoliticization. Uh, that uh, the accelerating the acceleration of crises and entering into an age of turbulence, which seems at least politically more fruitful, more potentially productive, more mm-hmm. propitious for us, can also be an era in which people feel even more vulnerable. And mm-hmm. I guess transforming that into some productive action rather than uh rather than kind of an, an abject position in relation to this crazy mm. flux of the modern mm. world which we can't you know we can't intrude upon anymore um i think that's the that's the challenge well what do you do when crisis is normalized then for you that when you describe that period then it's then yeah. it's the norm you know then well, then you have like never-ending crisis and a state yeah. of emergency means that you have the lifting of all laws and norms and not and constitutional mm. crisis but maybe that's um, but to say that that's a period that and a rupture between two um, periods of norms actually co- is self-contradictory, Thomas, because you what you're saying is we just this this destabilization is our no- new norm. Um, 
isn't it though? Yeah, it could be. But then, what is another name for it if it's like prolonged crisis? Then we can't what is? I mean, what? I'm crisis. sorry. I'm looking at this thing from Strake, but he just calls it like a long period of systemic disintegration. Is that, yeah. So, like that. Uh, so this is. I mean, this is something that. Let's I talk have about. more on what you think on that street quote because I love it. So maybe you can tell us a little. Yeah. Bit so I mean, I'll. The first, I mean, I'll just, I'll kind you of can read, read it out even. Of. Yeah. So. Um, so. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll read it out. So it says, before capitalism will go to hell, then it will, for the foreseeable future, hang in limbo, dead or about to die from an overdose of itself, but still very much around, as nobody will have the power to move its decaying body out of the way. Much more likely, we are facing a long period of systemic disintegration, in which social structures become unstable and unreliable, and therefore uninstructive for those living in them. Um... The social order of capitalism will then issue not in another disorder, sorry, not in another order, but in disorder or entropy. And then he goes on to quote Gramsci. So, so he says, the old is dying, but the new cannot be born. And this, usher, this ushers in an interregnum in which pathological phenomena of the most diverse sort come into existence. Um, so this is in a society devoid of reasonably coherent and minimally, minimally stable institutions capable of normalizing the lives of its members. So, I mean, that, I suppose that's kind of a, an advocacy by the end for social democracy, right? Um, but then he talks about, you know, the kind of life in the, this society demands constant in, improvisation, so substituting strategy for structure. So this is obviously like the, the last parts of this quote are things that are obviously like already happening. And so you may say that the kind of rest of it is happening for a while too um so that might be um disorder can last for a long time that's all i mean i think that's all i'm kind of mm. really right. saying by that and that can be that can become a um a normative structure just because it's something that repeats itself doesn't mean that um it's not in itself like a mode of like crisis right because there's nothing to say how long a crisis lasts. Mm. So how do, how do you um, and I might <clears throat> might not be remembering this entirely correctly, but they, I think David Harvey's analysis of this is basically it's kind of maybe a little bit different. So he says from post-war period till the early 1970s, the the dominant subject that you had there was 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 alienated yeah um and that could could be unpacked in terms of depression yeah and then but then from 73 onwards this is when you had a real this this compression of space time you had yeah. basically the, the the flux that even marx talks about in the communist marx and Engels talk about in the communist manifesto really comes comes to the fore it's mm. extremely accelerated um, and so, therefore, the the subject is is basically bombarded with information. Mm. So, in, it's, it goes from being a, um, <clears throat> I guess, a, I think he says, in, from an alienated to a schizophrenic subject. Mm. Do does this is this in conflict with what you're what you're saying? Because um, it would seem to suggest actually that you're saying right this this current I, period of yeah. of of um, disorder leads to depression rather than a, a kind of would, a reaction of yeah, just too I much mean, going on. I suppose the first thing is to say that. I don't think alienation goes away in 1973. I think we can, I don't know whether necessarily everybody here would agree with me, but I know that a couple of people would. Um, but also that, you know, I, I, the, the alienated social relations are inherent to capitalism, right? This isn't something that like shifts and moves 
like over, like over its. This is no. social relations under capitalism are alienated. So mm -hmm. the very fact to say that it ends is to kind of misunderstand this idea of alienation in the first place. Um, second is to possibly well is to say that if you think if you are to think of um, whether this is a correct diagnosis, but if you are to think of the you know the prevalence of you know again like medical pathologies like depression and like and, and anxiety which you might associate with the kind of alienated form they have again this may be because of you know diagnoses and you know and these aren't things that were thought about but they have also skyrocketed too right um, so I think there is a general Overemphasis in that in the in this kind of work on space time over over like the domination of time, right? Okay. Because the domination of time is the thing which is actually inherent again inherent to, inherent to like the law of value itself, right? That that's the you know that's what we that's what we sell, right? Um, well, that's what yeah I mean I suppose. And, and the, but this question of time is important because, and it's often not as it seems. Uh, I think, I mean, I'm, I, I'm a big advocate of thinking about in terms of social acceleration and how, how fast time moves <laughs> and how fast time moves in different mm -hmm. times and places and the experience of time. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is an element of, of that kind of, of the feeling today that things are speeding up, that mm -hmm. things move faster and faster, that the rate of technological change is faster, even though if we can step back and say we know objectively that technological breakthroughs were more frequent and more important in the early 20th century in terms of chemicals, in terms of transportation. Today, you have this whirlwind of innovation, in particularly in, the, in, in communications technology more than transportation or other ones. You have this seem of this whirl of, of whirlwind of change at the same time that nothing really changes, mm -hmm. right? Everything changes, but everything stays the same. It's one, one way of speaking yeah. of that is of frenetic standstill. Which actually relates to depression quite well, and they, they mm -hmm. there's there's talk about the way in which depression is actually a, a, a pathology of our times, and yes. it's a pathological reaction to the sense of things being too fast, yeah. things of, of, of incessant yeah. change with 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 no future, right? Yeah. So that you're you, the the temporality is a sense of yeah. I mean, I talk about I suppose I talk about this in a bit in the paper in relation to the work of um, Moshe Poststone, the kind of the late. Um, Marxist historian um, who talks about this thing called the treadmill effect, right? Um, which is, um, well, I mean, I can kind of quote this again, but it's it, it kind of talk, it kind of talks about this ever tra you know this constant transformation, but also this kind of staying the same, right? So the nature of you know this kind of change in the nature of social life, um, it like reconstitutes. It reconstitutes, it reconstitutes, what, is it, what does it say? Involves the, uh, the unfolding of capital involves the ongoing reconstitution of its own fundamental condition as an un unchanging feature of, um, of social life. But then he also then goes to say that the, um, the kind of historical dynamic of capital itself is, so this is a quote, so characterized by the constant translation of historical time into the framework of the present, which therefore reinforces that present. It reveals capitalism to be a society marked by a temporal duality, an ongoing accelerating flow of history on the one hand, 
an ongoing conversion of movement of time into another. So basically, the um, everything kind of basically seems eternal and natural. You know, everything kind of seems eternal and natural, even though like appearances, like even though like appearances change. This gloomy take does make us wonder what happened to an earlier spirit closely associated with California, that of hedonistic abandon. But even that was superseded by the late 1970s, where you got the seemingly nihilistic punk proclamations of no future. By the 21st century, that idea of no future may have become so taken for granted as to not be visible anymore. So what does that Californian spirit look like today, in an ever more atomized age where the emphasis is on self-care and quick technological solutions, as proposed by Silicon Valley? What does this culture without a future actually look like? Because, um, you know, there have been some um, expressions of, you know, of kind of like even in punk, you're like, oh, you know, sex pistols, no, no future. There's the, there's this idea that like actually there's a kind of, you know, radical turning away from the future, from responsibility. Yeah. And it's kind of claiming your own objection. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of cool. You know, you, you yeah. know, that smoking is cool. We all have to accept this. We are in California. Yeah. Nobody smokes here, but it is I, cool. Well, I, I, I'm saying because I smoke, so. Well, <laughs> you really shouldn't. There's there's a moral moral critique there. Um, no, but it's like okay, it's because you're you're showing right. I don't you know I don't care on one aspect of it. Is I don't I don't care about the future. But but a serious sort of serious question here. What does this? Um, I think you outlined some of the reasons why we might not have the future. But what what does this look like? Culturally? I think it's a. I can I, I can see it. So you know I do accept and think that at least certain formulations of that of that is a as a kind of a useful form of rebellion right i just i think my kind of maybe i think there's a, again like there's a limit point to that to, there's a kind of limit point to the idea of, of self-negation hey, would, would you describe it maybe as a sort of a disinvestment from yeah. from society and it's a way of trying to get beyond ideology which ends up only trapped further in ideology, maybe that you that you've did that, you know well, you no feel like the kind of punk gesture of no future, which today seems laughable, right? Because it's already commoditized before it even gets uttered. Um, mm. But it, it's just, but I think from from today's standpoint, you can look at that and go, but that's just disinvesting. That's just going. I'm I'm washed my hands of society. And right? the other thing is that I mean I, I'm not, and I haven't really thought this through, but I'm not sure if. The, some of these forms of reclamations are much more than like an again like much more than like an aesthetic choice, right? Because again, like someone who is maybe actually entirely abjected isn't doesn't actually have wouldn't see this idea again like wouldn't necessarily perceive this idea of like reclaiming their own abjection as being something which is in any way like liberatory. Um, I don't. Well. So to or, or wouldn't even be able, or even actually wouldn't be able to do that because they wouldn't have the kind of means or capacity to that, like at that point. So I wanted to say that with um, punk, you know, there was still enough in the belief in subcultural um, innovation that even in its most nihilistic, or maybe especially in its most nihilistic, no future sensibilities, there was a sense that you were remaking the world. Mm-hmm. And that you were going to really transform life. So actually, in fact, it was very optimistic. And the few people who m- were able to make a living out of it made a huge living out of it. Like I just read Patti Smith's biography as well as Kim Gordon's autobiography, mm-hmm. two memoirs. Mm-hmm. And um, it it just it dispersed into the star system. Like millions of people were in their garages playing guitar badly. And 
believing in this kind of liberation, but a few people made a lot of money out of it and were able to actually live and continue to live downtown. What I think is really sad about um, what's happened today is that um, that kind of youthful enjoyment or hedonism or transgression seems so, every path seems so reified. And I feel like what I um, understand about your youth is that there is less room for experimentation, less room for failure, less room for hedonism, less room for this kind of joyful nihilism that is about world breaking and remaking. Um, and um, I think there are material you know, reasons for why that is, but maybe the tenured radical like um, temporality has to do with the enjoyment of um, those nostalgic moments of useful world breaking and world making. And what you guys don't seem to be met up with is like the exhaustion of all of those alternatives at the same time that because of social media and the algorithmic way in which all of you have to make yourselves visible um, both to the profession and to your peers is that there's like the full um, um, algorithmic datification of your very beings from your moods to the um, things that you're eating to your Instagram photos to even your like nihilistic attempts to do some kind of world breaking and making and remaking that you know re recently like most recently with SoundCloud um, emo hip hop being these these 16 to 20 year olds are putting out all of this music online that is really you know dark and um Impressive, but a bunch of them have made a lot of money now and they're like dominating the music industry too. So I feel like capital is so ready to extract value from the culture of no future. And this is this and it's a legitimate culture. Like every young person should feel like they can make and break the world, but now you have to feel like you can make and break the world and then make a lot of money out of your attempts to make and break the world. I've I don't know what to say about that even. I, I just feel like the older generation, the tenured radical, is, feels very um, removed, and removed from this new discipline regime. And I don't celebrate the schizophrenic in any way. I'm not a Delizian, as all of you know, um, because I feel like that kind of pure reactivity, that kind of thin subjectivity, is what we want to render unto you. And I don't know what the alternatives are, but it's bad for youth is not youth is not youth anymore youth is like a um new time a time for self exploitation mm. i mean this 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 hit me uh, very starkly in here in california because as marijuana is legal you can go to shops which sell which are dispensaries. I mean, you guys know this. I'm, I'm, I'm being kind of glib in the way that I'm saying it. Even to like, go to a shop. Right. <laughs> right to no, no, no. But right, right, right. But I think that the shopping experience. I went. You know, I was in one of these places, which is basically an Apple store of weed. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I, I'm just going. This is, this is, this is kind of weird. This is kind of weird because, and what was weird about it was not was precisely the lack of enjoyment in it. It was, you know, it was so sterile and so like, hi, we're we're um, we're respectable middle class people, and we're coming mm -hmm. to buy weed and um excuse me shop attendant could you 
best advise me as to the the correct strain to treat my ailment you know and it's and it's sort of medicalized but also because it's no longer treated under the medical regime but it's just legal it's kind of a this in between place and it's like uptight wine buyers mm -hmm. being like oh i'm not sure about the 88 merlot and it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. but this sativa strain is a little leaves me a little bit neurotic and it's so it, and it, it the enjoyment of hey, let's get stoned and get fucked up yep. is just completely yep. not there and actually would, would seem totally inappropriate if you were in there like, hey, man, what's going to get me the most fucked up? And they'd be like, that's not the way we do things here. Here's the wellness range of cannabino yeah. cannabinoid creams. And it, <laughs> that's where the enjoyment is. You know, even this enjoyment thing, this hedonistic thing is where you can be like, yeah, fuck it, there's no future. They have this moment of timelessness of being stoned isn't even being stoned anymore, you know. It's, right. it's, completely, it's completely quantified. The most important thing is how much you have and what effect it's going to be. So it's it's very instrumentalized. And I think yeah. that that is is of a of a piece with with as we were talking about before the wider. So Mark Fisher talks about pre corporation. Anything which is potentially radical is already seen coming. So Kurt Cobain, for example, they saw him coming. They they quant they commercialized it. They kind of instrumentalized it. And then it's like here's same same with marijuana. Here's here's something which previously had some tinge of you know real rebellion, getting fucked up, breaking the rules. No, you can actually work out how much um, of various different things there are in it and what, what the effect is going to be. You know, it's a bit of a sort of depressing conclusion. So was taking drugs become like really lame? We obviously went to a bar to find out. Here's George and myself, Alex, talking to two friends of the podcast in some Hollywood bar we forgot the name of. The voices you're going to hear now belong to Amberly Frost, whom you'll have heard on this podcast before, as well as freelance writer Alex Gendler. But this is so. This is the thing, right? About about weed, about marijuana, food. It's just that, gonna, you're going to break it down for us. It's just break it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's just for me. For so, me. It's like Joe Rogan now. No, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like weird things to do in LA, and I was like, just looking, I was like, oh, Joe Rogan is on. Like, just enough. And Joe Rogan's on. Just wow. on. He's, he's always on. The, he goes like three hours a day, doesn't he? Maniac. But it's like growing up, not growing, even growing up, but like as of my, you know, 20s. Like, I don't know, I don't know anyone who smoked weed, like, in, in, in the UK. Like, or yeah, maybe, no, and like, they, no one, they do No, but people, people did hard drugs. Right, so they right. Do pills but, but, and shit. Yeah, pills and coke, and but but like weed was like, why are you doing that? Like, well, that's and now kind of they lame. have that's they now they have a weed that is like a hard drug there. Yeah, where it's they like, have, oh my British God. people have no chill. They what, cannot what, calm down. Yeah, it's like they can't even drink; they have to binge drink. Yeah, yeah, that may be that might be right. Yeah, their drug culture. They looked at weed, a drug that made you sort of calm down and relax and mellow out and feel like sleepily social. And they're like, let's turn it into something that makes you see God. Like, you know, like. Well, but, there, but so there is no. The, 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 the only kind of weed consumption that happens is kind of subcultural, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like those people who are into weed, so you're like slightly hippie ish or slightly. You know, Rasta, or you're slightly, you know, you're basically. Right. Guy who was involved in the Labour Party who would not leave me alone about trying to like fucking like smoke weed with him, and I'm like, why is that? Why yeah. are you like that? And I asked my friend. He goes, oh, he's like, because no one smokes weed here, yeah. and he thinks you're American. Yeah. And like, well, we you do are smoke American. weed, but he's like, he thinks because you're American. Right. Um, 
you know, you just like get. And I've, I've talked about smoking weed on the show, but it's like, you no, know, this is that terrifying British weed that like, you know, but makes the, you right. But the but the but the, but the, but the flip side that. to that, like in terms of the American experience, is precisely that it's become. I don't know. It's it's weird for me because it's like, oh wow, this isn't like teenagers, tr- you know, trying to get high and whatever and, and just acting silly. It's like. Hmm. I'm gonna go into a shop and and consume buy weed like I would. Coffee. There's a certain connoisseurship, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah, You're yeah. like, hmm, okay, so it's sativa strain, da 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 da. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, can you advise you know me on on what the you know? They're called bud tenders, uh, right? Bud tenders. Okay, I, bud, bud tenders. Hey, fuck that portmanteau. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's I just like getting high. I think weed nerds are fucking virgins. Like, I don't understand. Well, right, that was my, trying to you know. Tell you about, okay, so here's the, that, and I'm like. But that's the one thing that you're not really allowed to do, or to want to do, is just to get fucked up. You can't just want to get high. No, I love There has to be, there has to be, but there has to be an instrumentality <laughs> to it. Yeah, These rules all apply. It has to be a form of yeah, consumption. Yeah. yeah. I know, yeah. I'm disagreeing or, with ideology as if he was telling yeah, yeah, yeah. me, <laughs> he was telling me to subscribe to it. Yeah, or like when people, I'm high. when people disagree with like, it's generalization, it's like, it's a generalization, it doesn't apply to everyone all the time. Right, like, calm down. This is generalization. Yeah, I'm saying that's what I really believe. Yeah. That, 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 what, the... No, I'm... Um, yeah, so then that, that's why it's all quantified and it's like going into an apple. Which I guess store. is fine, which I guess is fine because it's, you know, it is just a, alcohol is a drug and it's another drug like that. And I guess that's fine. I yeah, guess but it's I don't just... like those motherfuckers either who get really into like... I don't like beer nerds either. Right. Not to be confused with the beer nerd who is a friend of ours. Um, who I think only drinks Blue Moon, but I'm kind of a beer nerd. That is a that is a cool beer nerd. I mean, my, my, brother, my brother's a beer nerd. He, he's a brewer even, so it's like next no, level. No, he's like, a brewer. Right. So not this. So like, okay, right. this is a professional thing. Yeah. Like yeah. it would be he's weird a, if but you he had knew to, someone. But he had to be a beer nerd to get into the position. Like, okay, yeah. it would be weird if you knew someone who knew uh, the basics of cat anatomy but didn't have a veterinary degree, right? Right. So people who aren't brewers, who are into beer, I'm like, what are you doing with that We're just beer? really into cat paraphernalia, but don't have a cat. Yeah. Like, don't, don't have a cat. Oh, just yeah, are like, yeah, yeah. Just it's like, I'm medicine. really, like, I'm the cat. <laughs> you're the cat fan. But it's like, oh, so how many cats do you have? Oh, no, none. I, I, yeah. yeah, they're posers is what we're saying. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> there's a bit sinister. For that. Yeah. It's surprising how many numbers are now associated with having a beer. Obviously, how much you get and how much it costs. But now, the ABV, yeah. the IBU. You know, yeah, the specific gravity. Yeah, yeah, that's right. As well. Yeah. So you need to have. I mean, surely it's just a type oh of beer, God, and it's a standard stem. amount. That's so yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I like. Well, I, like I, good... I do have a good friend in Vienna who is a chemistry grad student and uh, and, and uh, runs a brewery, and they let them use the. Uh, they let them use the, the school's like chemistry lab to do all their brewing and stuff. Um, I don't know. It's pretty cool. I mean, look, I, 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 I like cool. I like good. I like good. I'm a he, I'm a bone people. I, mean, I like good things. Yeah, you know, sure. I, like, I like nice things. But 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 it's the beer is also one of these things which is meant to be consumed while you're doing yeah. something more interesting, like right. talking to your friends or mm. whatever, right? Oh, you have to drinking beer the, is the uh, more interesting. The, bit, yeah, the yeah, the just like, yeah, yeah. Or depends on your friends. Bit, but really. you know, beer geeks. The conversation revolves around the beer, which is a bit like wine geeks, and it's also bad when it's like. It's just a slobbering like over, like, no, oh, but the 83 Merlot is just the, you know, and you're yeah, like, no, it's disgusting. I don't... You're that guy. And they specifically got into being beer in that way to, like, be that guy, be yeah. the wine guy, blah, 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 blah. But that's too out of date. That's anachronistic. But they are exactly that guy. 
But then there's a the thing about weed, right? Where it's like, so that same thing is happening, oh, right? The same, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but but, 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 if, but, if, but if this is the generalized... The beer and the wine guy. But if this is the generalized middle-class experience of consuming weed, or, you know, marijuana products that get yeah. you high, then, I don't know, then that's one kind of strange, and two, like, then you think, okay, but what's the effect of the drug? It's just, I don't know, there's this element that you can just... I'm not... I don't know. I, 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 haven't, I haven't got my mind. Are you becoming exactly more on drugs? I'm, 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 I'm pro alcohol and I'm anti weed, is kind of what I'm maybe getting at. I don't know if that. Most not, people are. Yeah. Not that I'm like. No, you're talking about the mass sedation. It's not. It's okay. like because it's the thing of like going through your regular day and you can go through a high. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm not going through my day. Yeah, you're not getting like, fucked up. I'm an up. alcoholic then. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Here's the other thing. So, that, that, I think that, that's, that touches on this thing of. Um, Drugs as uh, self-medication under like capitalism, yeah, and like the, this idea that like, well, and people get to do that and feel like well, I don't have an opioid addiction. Yeah, yeah. no, but I mean, it's, yeah. not, it's not just that. I mean, and also, like, I don't like, have emotional difficulties with yeah. people because I'm not really feeling anything. Well, yeah, stuff like just... weed or psychedelics or even like benzos or whatever. And the fact that like it's it's not like like you said, like teenagers get, getting fucked up to have fun and have like a totally abnormal experience. It's yeah. like. Oh, this is part of my day. I come home and, and smoke a bowl and like you know, uh, pop some pills, or even like before they have to like go out to the store or something. Yeah, it's just like, I, yeah. it's like it's something they it's do like to get through the day. It's like lubricating, like, and so like we're taking yeah. this out of British people, like lubricating so every social interaction with alcohol because you can't interact without it. I'm actually okay with that. But, but weed is like but just also, you're all, all doing it together. Yeah. It's you do it together. So, it is a social lubricant. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, whereas it's social. Isn't. Whereas weed is just like you yourself. Yeah. Kind of. Well, I think there's See, a, there's I mean, a... this is also one of the things that I realize I am a project stoner. A what stoner? I am a project stoner. Okay. So I'm like, hey guys, let's go. Let's to do party. this. And yeah. Do, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and that's not how most people experience weed. I think but, it's because yeah, it's part of a general, kind of wider general trend of just managing your hedonism completely. It's like, yeah. Okay. I can't. I can't go beyond this point. Like, I need it to self-medicate. I need it to sure. release just enough without having getting completely fucked up. So I need to be able to go back to work on Monday. But in order to see that, there's a friend of mine who's very into his raving. I, I was telling you about Yeah, yeah, yeah I was gonna He also microdoses LSD and all this sort of stuff. But he's very, he's like, okay, well, you need to take this pill at this time and this pill at this time. And before that, you need to have taken yeah, all these- optimization. This, this, yeah, um, this optimization. Yeah, soluble vitamin C because that, that reduces the come down and then afterwards you need, and so he's, so going on a night out with him is taking all of these things at a certain point in time. Cool wants to. It's kind of, kind of cool, but where's the like cutting loose? Where's the actual? Isn't it's the a very neoliberalization. Like well, yeah, it's like your schedule, like yeah. everything. Yeah. Isn't the whole point of doing drugs also to like disrupt ritual and like you know do something sort of different? Maybe, but there's there's I mean, drug, but drugs have their own rituals as well, right. like for ages, right? It's like oh, you know. Yeah, but not the, the bomb, way right? I do them. <laughs> no, but everybody has, you know, like well, certainly, a counter, as a it's a, certainly as a teenager, you start to get into like how you, you read the ritual of like rolling the joint and passing it around. Yeah, like yeah, there's yeah. certain codes and rules about how you do it and That's whatever. That's organic social stuff. You're well, not talking about like ayahuasca nerdy. No, okay, yeah. no, I'm not. But but there's rituals just in the in in the middle Pass the coochie to the left hand side. Right. right. Uh, but yeah. But no, it's like, uh, it's, it's, th those aren't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the idea of like, they're taking it when you're scheduling it in that way, Yeah. more into the realm of like, like a, like a hyper ritualized thing. Yeah. Not like something that just happens out of like, oh, it's de-ritualized because it's not, there's no, um, 
the whole point of a ritual is, is it's sort of like conventions that are sort of arbitrarily defined and like only right, sustained right. by the shared community. This like optimization can yeah, yeah. not be ritual. Yeah, yeah. Right. This is just right. like, oh, we take this at this time. It's completely, yeah. it's completely, you know, capitalist. Well, but, it's, but, uh, it's, it's, but you can even uh, imagine some, a consultant or a coach of some sort saying, let me optimize oh, your drug taking for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to measure your, mm-hmm. you know, levels of serotonin and, and whatever else and equilibrate yeah. your thing. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's the opposite of ritual. Well, right, yeah. It's completely rationalized. So there's no element. And there's no spontaneous. Be irrational or the spontaneous, which means that you do get more bang for your buck in one very, very narrow sense. And if you're, you know, I'm not, right. I'm not, I'm not defending it, but you're, but it fits in better yeah. with yeah. with other things that people have to do. It's, yeah, yes. well, and that's a real shame. Yeah. That's yeah, a real shame. That's a shame. That you don't have any but it's ability to be. Well, I mean, if I could guarantee, so one, like completely, completely unhinged. Thing. Hedonism for a definite period of time, and then I could be like ready to go to work the next day. It's yeah, like great, yeah, yeah. I can get yeah. fucked up on a but, Tuesday. But no, yeah, but yeah, yeah. that's the paradox. That's the paradox because it is never completely unhinged hedonism yeah. if yeah. you already have in mind that it's there's gonna, this yeah. narrow window yeah, yeah. within which no. true hedonism would be like throwing out whatever your right. alarm because, clock because, or because whatever the, because you Because the three-day bender where you just fucking disappear, right. like it's yeah. not happening. And you right. fundamentally can't optimize hedonism just yeah. the way you can't optimize yeah. ritual. There we go. Because you have to fit to be truly unhinged. That's a good work here. We're making some progress. For, yeah, because there has to be a possibility of not coming back if it's really unhinged, it's yeah, untethered, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. There's no which right. just sounds frightening to me. Like you know, ask me ten years ago. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. I'm like, yeah, yeah. that sounds frightening. No, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I'm awesome. getting old, man. Yeah, ask yeah, ask yeah, me no. on Sunday afternoon, and I would have been like, no way, no way. <laughs> Well, we need to reassess what reality is here. <laughs> and just what, what, what were you thinking it was? What was the um, what were your concerns? Oh, he was, he was I a, love it when people try and recount where their yeah. head was when it happened. So basically, all of the facts of reality. I, I mean, I could establish them in a fairly logical way. Like we we're in California, we were in um, LA. Mm-hmm. You know, but this is what happened. But they didn't have any. They didn't ring true as I thought them. That I was like, this, this intellectually, I see where it makes sense, but it doesn't have that feel of reality. And so I was Isn't like, Isn't that Ooh. the psychological phenomenon of derealization? Is that actually a real yes. thing? Yes. Yeah. Well, you can also have depersonalization, where you're like, you're talking, and I know you're there, but you're yeah, not yeah. real. Yeah. Right. Mm. Okay. So, but I was not expecting this uh, at all. I was like, okay, this is just just going to get pretty stoned and just walk around. Well, but, but also you were, pre- like, you were projecting your own psychedelic. state to everybody else. So, you, so he was like, so our friend went to get in his car to drive to his friend's house, who was also very stoned about the stone as I was. And he was like, we have to stop him. We have to go back after him because he's going dr- to get in his car and, right. and drive. And it was like, no, no, he, he's fine. Like, he, if he's at the level that I am, which I assume he more or less was, yeah. like, he's maybe a bit too stoned to drive, but more or less fine. Yeah, he's yeah. not like you are. And, and being able to, you weren't able to disentangle, like, how you were feeling from yeah. how the whole world basically mm. was. Like, yeah. the world is stoned, or at least the people you're with are also equal. Maybe this is a problem that rad loops have. What? They can't <laughs> disentangle how they're feeling from how... Aren't you outraged? No, no, no I'm, like, I'm not. That is literally... That is literally a definition is the one I prefer of psychosis. You can't tell the difference between the way you feel and the yeah. way the world is. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I think I could still realize that that was, that it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. So intellectually, so, that's so frustrating. I was, so, so I was still had enough of a, a, a foot in reality. Right. So it wasn't but you were like, having niggling like, doubts. That but you it wasn't like acid where, yeah. like, where you can't, you really. Yeah, can't you have tell. no idea what's really. Um, so yeah, it's like that was, thing where people who get, right. um, they get a certain part of their brain damage, then like they they get this thing where 
they they're convinced that's you that everyone... made damage now. Uh-huh. Um, well, I mean, drugs kind of do that temporarily. But uh, <laughs> they get this thing where if a certain part of their lobe gets damaged, they're convinced that everyone around them is like an imposter because they've yeah. lost the. It's like capacity where like you look at you look yeah. at someone's face and it, it coheres into like oh this is the face of a person I recognize. So and they see all the features correctly, like they they, yeah. they recognize that this person looks like you oh know their God, sister or their so wife or their I've mother. Had, I've had some very bad. Like it doesn't. It's like yeah. I've had some bad time. mushroom trips, yeah. which yeah. I believed I had died. I was certain I ha- I was eighteen. No, I was seventeen. Last day of school, took a bunch of mushrooms, which are legal uh, at the time, and just so psychedelic mushrooms or just like, normal mushrooms. Oh, just, just, yeah, just champion de Paris in my salad. Uh, no, like, <laughs> and that was so good. He thought you died. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This salad is so bad. I had thought I had died. No, like, yeah. ate psychedelic mushrooms and just genuinely like was crying my eyes out, trying to call. I think my parents to try to be like, I'm dying help me oh, no. and my friends had to keep oh, taking no. like this clunky huge mobile phone away from me and just being like no and then like these tissues flying everywhere which were actually were tissues that i'd been crying in so much that it and then i and then finally like i things calmed down a little bit and walked out of the woods and it was very bright out and i was like oh so i'm dead and this is like heaven now and we're walking and we took the metro and it were took all the way huh were you upset i was upset yeah 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 and my girlfriend i had to like go through the school yearbook to like check that I thought things her photo would be missing because I was there anyway some confused thing <laughs> and she was there and I was like and, it, oh, and this like was at a pool logic. hall that we went to and it was like gone on the metro and like it was like an hour later it. until I realized holy shit I'm not dead this is actually real and everything's fine and so, then I started crying again I'm like oh god that's okay Wait, so, so you thought you were in heaven and heaven just looked like you know well, t- taking, the, me- taking the metro but very bright <laughs> every, like it was right. a bit faded out but, we didn't say anything about yeah. heaven where did you think you were no, I was, in, I was still where I lived. I was in Brussels and it was... But like, you were just dead. dead. Oh, you were just a ghost. Did you think yeah, I was dead. Well, I was just in some, in some um, facsimile of the real world, oh, which right. was post-life. Oh wow! Oh, uh, I think that's in a. I think like, a yeah, it's like it's a euphemism for death. They're like, yeah. uh, so they're now post life. <laughs> I think there's, there's a. Do you have you read Will Self? Yeah, there's a Will Self short story about this. Which is just like the. It's just life yeah. all the way. Down. Yeah, well, oh, the Will Self story is like it's like oh, when people in England die, they actually just go to this shitty part of England. Like, yeah, but that's Will Self who's a cunt. He's a he's the most sneery, condescending, still a good like, writer. liberal type. Still a good writer, but yeah. just the most. Awesome. Yeah. Even a lot he, he's drawn in as a political commentator because Brexit? he has a. Yeah, well, yeah, you can yeah. imagine. His, like, his take on Brexit is <laughs> one of the worst ones. Well, just, just the most <laughs> anti working class, anti popular yeah. kind of sense. Right, you know, right, just right. people are fun. People are disgusting and stupid, and I'm just the best. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Can we start reading them now. Yeah, yeah. We just found out Morrissey did another bad thing again. Yeah, I know, but, he's less, like, but I love it when they just—I love it when they do what they do. I tolerate Morrissey <laughs> because it's like—it's kind of—he's a musician. I don't care, but he, because he's a writer and he gets invited onto like panel, like political oh, right. panel shows. No, You're like, oh, what I are you doing there? I think they should invite Morrissey on the panel. I'm, show. I'm, I'm fine. Every time, like. Yeah. Two nice things and then one really racist <laughs> yeah, thing, and you're yeah. having to measure out like the way it's like, Every what is this? idiosyncratic person yeah. every time he yeah. talks about politics yeah, yeah. i like his music more because it just reminds me that he is a great artist he doesn't yeah, have yeah. to justify yeah, his yeah, political yeah. choices Absolutely. he can say whatever he likes and he does and he, and he does <laughs> yeah he does. he does which is rooted in nothing it's he's one of those people who seems to have very 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 emotional opinions yeah. without actually having them strongly 
like, which, which fits in with the music. Boomer. Very, very self-pitying. Yeah. But also quite a thin self-pity. Because yeah. there's nothing really wrong. Well, and emotions can be can fluctuate, and there's no like coherent structure to, yeah. you know, what your your thought of, of you know, for example, whatever yeah. being being yeah, a bit fey so. and and and. Well, maybe being tolerant and open to the world at the same time as being like kind of racist, you yeah, know, and yeah. it's like and then there's just no coherent structure. All over the place politically. Yeah. Too. Um, yeah. Or like God, what was he saying? What did he I know he's super oh, he pro wore he, Yeah. Oh oh he 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 wore like the pin of uh, some far right uh pro Brexit party, uh and like yeah, people got mad at him for that. I love how he's so dumb. Oh, like England first or something? Or the, oh, yeah, 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 Britain first. Yeah, Britain first. Yeah, 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 that yeah, was yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, which That's are like awful. really, uh, yeah, like really kind of, oh, neo-fascists are almost there. I, anyway. I, yeah, yeah. I love it. No, well, I he also we says like. to go back to the point where it's like, no. I mean, yeah, because it'll force us to stop exaggerating, right? You know, when, like, a pop star actually does do something pretty awful. Yeah. You know, there was, like, a thing where, I th- like, I think Eric Clapton just, like, shot off with a bunch of N-words. Oh, yeah. But, and, uh, like, that was just normal. Really? In I the mean, 70s? Have, yeah. I mean, I... Because we, 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 we've had yeah. some Clapton on in the car. Because convertible driving down right, the street right, had to right. do that right yeah. um, and and, he, and he's like oh Eric Clapton what a piece of shit and he wasn't even a bit aware of the I didn't even yeah. know yeah. 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 oh he just he just is a definitely a piece of shit and the music's boring awful awful uh, man you're, and then like do you remember you're it, the band Anal yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had a song called. It was like addressed to Eric Clapton, and the song title was like "Your Your Kid Killed Himself Because Your Record Sucked." That <laughs> 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 was. But like that's a. That is a strong that, title. That was, that was a problematic artist. Not fucking Taylor uh, Swift for fuck's sake. Right. Yeah. yeah. Who Clap, Clapton? Yes. Or anal. Clapton. I mean. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, but, no, yeah. Right. Well, uh, Lena was about uh, an underage. No, what am I thinking of here? He's, he has, he has every song, song, every song about a woman written before like 1990, you can assume <laughs> is written about an underage woman. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's a, that is a very good rule of thumb. Except for, except for like I don't know, Jesse. No, Jesse's mom was written later. Yeah, except uh, unless the song is specifically about uh, a milf or or some such. Right. Uh, like, you can yeah, assume yeah. That like she's unless underage. it's like Stacy's mom or something. Yeah. Then and Stacy's mom is probably like 30 or yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like the MILF, like, porn category of MILF, right. where it's just someone, like, over but 25. But that has not yeah. um, turned into a lot of pop songs. There's no, no MILF isn't. genre of pop songs. But maybe maybe it's just... Oh, I, maybe. Maybe. oh, no, wait, is that just what Leonard Cohen is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, hot Boston Teacher, Dan, also. Oh, hot Hot Teacher, teacher. <laughs> you can assume is, uh, yeah. yeah, we can say that, yeah. 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 Leonard, that I mean, it's funny, but that doesn't work. Leonard Cohen is obviously not MILF genre. Leonard Cohen, 100%. Went after forty-five-year-old women who like painted pictures of genocide. But at which, but at which like, age, but at which like, age? Like, he that man liked age-appropriate women. Well, I'm, I'm, he might have also not other women, but he, he's definitely not someone who probably ran away from a age-inappropriate for for a rock star. Yeah, you need to yeah it's like, like every sex when they were forty-five. Well, maybe maybe like, in some yeah, distant future, enough. people will look back and listen to like whatever seventies rock and be like, "Whoa, those guys really liked their daughters, didn't they?" <laughs> <laughs> Pretty wholesome. Pretty wholesome. This is wholesome stuff. <laughs> uh, it, kinda, it is kind of sad that like everything is so explicit now. And I don't mean in a moralist way. I mean like in an aesthetic way. No, yeah, like, there's no like there's no subtlety, yeah. and people used to really have to dance around shit. Yeah, which is 
funny. Yeah, con yeah. well, constrained art is, uh, you know, often better art. Yeah. But even just like sexual pleasure, which is like has a tension and a release. Oh, yeah. If there's no tension, you're like, and you're like, fucking in the ass. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, well, we're just there now, aren't right, we? Right. Yeah. I think it's probably because people don't, you know, it's, the audience not getting it. Is way worse than kind of patronising to your audience, <laughs> right, right? Right. Yeah. So you so you, you can't ever make them work and then not get it. Right. You have to instead say, yeah, you have to be explicit. This talks about anal uh, sex. It's, it's, this is why Adorno was wrong because uh, Adorno had that whole part in uh, you know in the what, dialectic of enlightenment about like the you know the entertainment industry and how it's all like it all substitutes uh, you know simulacra for the real thing. And he had that whole passage about the. Instead of like showing the breasts, the television show us like the outline of the breasts in the sweater. And I'm like, no, no, just wait like you know, 50 yeah. years, they'll be showing the breasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've we've got a problem actually that every single recording we've done, and this is maybe the sixth or seventh over the course of a couple of, of less than seven days, has a mention of Adorno at least once in every single <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, and you know, this is this you is know a problem. What? I mean. If it comes up organically, it's fine. Yeah, no, we're just gonna have to now. Well, you, someone's been asking, someone's been asking us to do an episode yeah. on Adorno, and we're like, I don't want to have to fucking read Adorno and be and yeah. have something to say. I don't want to. I don't feel like doing that. But someone keeps nagging us about this, and and now we this is just Adorno supercut. Yeah, yes. Adorno supercut. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, settled. <laughs> yeah, just. <laughs> It wouldn't really hang together as an episode. <laughs> you, wanted, you wanted a fucking Adorno episode here. Here's some people talk, mentioning just Adorno and not really. Stuff on the cutting room floor yeah, that yeah. just taped it's, like, it's like that super cut of uh, just Trump saying China. Like, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. soothing after yeah, a while. Yeah, yeah. But China. Adorno. Oops, got a little sidetracked there. Let's round this off by going back to our discussion at the University of California, Irvine, where we'll try to put a bow on this stuff about mental health and wellness. First, Catherine Liu. Then to close us off, George and Thomas Williams discuss what the drive is behind the capitalist focus on mental health. And George suggests that we maybe think about it in terms of rationalization. I really feel like the um, institutionalized wellness regimes are the um, tail are the tailorist disciplining of the people of the gig economy, the gig economy workers. So wellness as a way of optimizing and motivating workers' potentiality is a um, full-on managerial attempt to produce more, to extract more labor out of precarious and um, gig workers, especially young ones. And it's, you know, it's obviously addressing real serious um, mental health, public health crises um, manifestations. But I, I feel like with ideology critique, people um, in the olden days used to say, well, what do you have to do about this? You know, well, you're so negative. Like, what's, what can happen? Like, that's just so dark. And I do think that actual solidarity and political, um, politically robust forms of intersubjectivity are the only ways in which we can... Um, um, overcome this kind of um, the mental health crisis of depression, of atomization, and its corporate managerial um, techno-solutionism that um, is su suggested as the cure. You quote um, the WHO um, yeah. report, and there's some interesting lines in there. One is, one is mental capital. 
Yeah. So good mental health allows for cognitive and emotional flexibility, which are the basis for social skills and resilience in the face of stress. This mental capital is vitally important for the healthy functioning families, communities, and mm-hmm. societies. What I mean, you've, there's there's a copy of of cap, first volume of Capital out on the table there. <laughs> so I, I'm, as far as I can remember, Marx doesn't use the phrase mental capital. No. What do they What do they mean? Is it just purely mental states are an instrumental like resource of productivity? I th- I, th- I think so. Yeah, I mean the next I mean the next lines that are going to follow what you said says that mental mental health is an important economic factor. The shift from a manufacturing to a knowledge society emphasizes even more the importance of mental health for sustaining productivity. So good population mental health contributes to economic productivity and prosperity, making it crucial for economic growth. So there is actually obviously like no interest in mental health beyond for its own sake. like beyond yeah for its own sake at, or for like the pursuit of to kind of go back to minimum moralia where we start with the kind of pursuit of like the good life all right or the right. Pe- that people have a life which is in any way set you know the idea that we have a life which is in, in any way separate mm-hmm. um from our a- economic activity is obviously something yeah, that, we right. know, that we know we right. don't anymore right but um it's but at least in the it, days of the high bourgeoisie, they yeah. believed that there was an yeah. aesthetic education that should be mm-hmm. protected from the marketplace. And now um, nobody believes that, and um, even the highest bourgeois capitalist doesn't believe I mean, that. I mean, I suppose it would be, again, naive to believe something like the WHO would prioritize our mm. health over, over productivity. Mm. But um, I suppose maybe I... Before I read this thing, I was not necessarily expecting quite so um, terrifying, like terrifyingly mm. terrifying language. So really, this... that it's that it's so like blunt and clear. Like this isn't yeah. something that's even. It's, it's not like a secondary thing. Yeah. This is like what they when they're when they're thinking about the importance of people's mental health. This is the only thing that they're interested in. Mm. The, yeah. Like the, the, the only thing. I think it's important to economic growth. Yeah. That's model. It's important yeah. growth because. Yeah, it's, well, it's value, we could it's, just have economic stagnation. Well, no, yeah. could be stagnant, it's, it's but value, like, we need. Well, to have it's you know capital value and expansion, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the it's. I think it I, seems to understand. It seems to understand that very like very well in a way that again is should but, probably shouldn't be surprising, but I think at least yeah. still yes. kind of seems. So I think of economic growth is something uh, as something that needs to be the the boundaries of which need to be shaped. Right. Yeah. To, to in the in the lightest sense possible with the with minimal disturbance. Yeah. So it's about minimizing disturbance, minimizing risk, so that economic growth might continue, in the hope that the genie is out of the bottle, that the animal spirits kind of take care of themselves. Yeah. Because there is no there's no planning faculty, and this is uh, the thing yeah. about presentism as well. Yeah. Both in terms of your own self not being able to make plans because you don't know what job you're going to have mm-hmm. next year, uh, but also in the sense that uh, that 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 at least aren't able to take on planning and actually see try to shape the future even in, in very capitalist terms are unable to shape the future mm-hmm. and unable to shape the economy in such a way as to stimulate growth it's just about making sure that there, there's fewer encumbrances like for example someone uh, having mental illness and not being able to contribute so it's it's, it's, papering, it's papering over you know it's kind of papering over the cracks and pretending the crises aren't happening mm. Yeah, I think I think I think Weber's really useful here. This idea of rationalization, which I don't hear as much anymore, but yeah. I think it I think it just fits so well. The instrumentalization, the quantification, the there is some there is some end which is which is being which mental states in general are being utilized to get towards, which is a, a productive um, um, output one. 
but there's no real assessment of whether this is a good good thing or not mm. and i think it does this 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 is the logic of mm-hmm. the way that we're increasingly dealing with mental states and it even touches on the the you know the 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 attempts to have to get pleasure through going to this dispensary that we were at it was completely a completely rationalized mm-hmm. process i think that's is a good way mm-hmm. to describe it because it is a it is um it does have an internal logic there is a it's not it's not completely arbitrary and it's not completely um it's, it's quite shocking maybe when you read it for the first time but you can see yeah, absolutely. you yeah. can see where they're coming from <laughs> that's not what i'm saying yeah. but, it, but it really is about uh, optimization yeah. of the human state All right, that's it for part two. In part three, we delve into the new class structure that has given birth to the Californian ideology 2.0, and how this plays out in terms of cities and suburbs today. As a provocation, consider whether these developments we're discussing actually represent the end of the American dream. Or maybe even further, it's an American nightmare, one that's coming to you soon.